Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, the Course Health series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So in this episode of the Course Health series, I'm speaking with Dr. Brian Broom about his chapter 14 that he wrote titled The Practice of Whole Person-Centred Healthcare. And until early 2019, Brian was a clinical immunologist at Auckland City Hospital and is an adjunct professor at Auckland University of Technology. He is trained in internal medicine and psychotherapy and now works to train clinicians to practice whole person medicine and healthcare. He's written three books addressing this issue. These are titled Somatic Illness and the Patient's Other Story, Meaningful Disease, How Personal Experience and Meanings Cause and Maintain Physical Illness, and Transforming Clinical Practice Using a Mind-Body Approach, a Radical Integration. And the links for these books are in the show notes. So in this episode, we talk about Brian's interesting professional journey from immunology to psychiatry and to psychotherapy. We talk about how immunology and psychotherapy seem to be rooted in different paradigms and how he has managed to bridge the two paradigms and addressed any tensions and challenges within them. We talk about the role and value of the person's story in his whole person perspective. We talk about relational care, which resonates with my conversation with Dr. Maxi Michiak in episode 9, and it might be worth revisiting that episode off the back of this one. And we talk about what he calls hearing stories and making diagnoses and how these two pursuits relate. And finally, we talk about medicine as body-only practice and traditional psychotherapy as mind or story-only practice and how his whole person approach avoids this dualism. So this was an absolutely captivating conversation with Brian. The sincerity and compassion in the way in which he tells his own story of his whole person-centred approach, really illustrates the way the practice needs to change, or to be, to truly be person-centred. So I bring you Dr. Brian Broom. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And we're here today, or your day, my evening, to talk about your chapter 14 that you wrote for the Course Health book titled The Practice of Whole Person-Centred Healthcare. And you've got a, a, a really interesting and I want to say unique clinical background that perhaps uniques used too much in the Course Health book. But I think in this case, your clinical background really is quite different. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about your journey or your clinical journey, where you started out, something in the middle and where you've ended up. Yeah, um... I decided to become a doctor when I was eight or nine. And it's still a bit mysterious as to why I did that. I remember the time and place, and but don't remember the logic at all about it. It was an urge of some kind, which I persisted with more or less until I got to medical school, which was uh, something for our family because there were no there was no tertiary training of any kind in the extended family so medicine has felt uh, kind of vocational 
um, for a variety of reasons. I was also uh, brought up in a very uh, religious home and was quite conscious uh, through those developmental years of the splits between ordinary life and uh, religion and spirituality. And my mother was a, um, a, a sort of had a hard-working woman who had lost her mother at age 16 and had become the sort of woman of the family um, before she got married. And she suffered quite a lot of physical symptoms, which which worried me. And and so I wonder, and, and there was no medical answer to that. And so I can look back and I, I can attribute my career to some extent to things, to strands like that. But I, I went into medicine and graduated and then eventually opted for internal medicine and specifically for immunology. There were some accidentals in all of that and influences from senior people. I was more of a philosopher at heart than I was a scientist, and I went into a very scientific discipline and had the privilege of being trained around the world, funded by our government here, uh, to set up immunology in New Zealand. With uh, uh, So I was one of the early, or was one of two, of the, I was one of the two earliest immunologists uh, in New Zealand. So when I came back, I had a set of kind of scientific responsibilities and research responsibilities for the community as an immunologist. But within five years, you know, towards the late 30s, the sort of midlife crisis time of one's life, I realized that I was getting more narrowly confined to a highly scientific and lab and research-based profession. And there was that other side of me that was increasingly squeezed out. And 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 I'd always had a, a, a strong desire to integrate things. Um, again, that may have been due to the background factors, but I don't think it's reducible uh, entirely to that. So there was this urge in me to not spend my life more and more in the lab and with measurement, uh, but to explore um, the integrative aspects of medicine and what it meant to, uh, what healing meant and what it meant in the overall picture of what it was to be a, a person looking back. But it wasn't quite like that. I didn't know what to do. I had three children and how did I leave immunology and what did I do with that? So I diverted into psychiatry, which is probably the the closest medical thing I could do. Did you look at a few different other areas or psychiatry? You looked. Was there any other disciplines that you looked at which might kind of satisfy your desire to be less lab-based or were there, was psychiatry the only one that was really dealing with people in the way that you felt you, you wanted to? Um, I didn't know where I was going. I set off on a kind of a, a prolonged journey of not knowing, which was actually quite stressful uh, um, and uncertain. And, and I had many doubts as I went along. What on earth am I doing here? And psychiatry was a 
I had considered doing psychiatry as opposed to immunology much earlier. So it, it was a, a kind of instinct of, well, this is what I can do. I can earn a living. I can pay my mortgage. I can examine the mental side of life uh, via psychiatry. And it was interesting, but gradually as I went through psychiatry, I realized that as a discipline, it was very um, brain-bent, very neuro um, neuropeptide bent, uh, drug bent, and um, and so it has proven. So while I was getting sort of, I was moving sideways and forwards too, uh, I wasn't really happy with the sort of body orientation of psychiatry, which is really brain orientation, if you like. So, uh, but psychotherapy did attract me. Um, there were some psychiatrists, a few that were very interested in psychotherapy, and it became a, a, a focus of mine. And eventually, I became a, a very active psychotherapist. I trained in that. I didn't finish my psychiatry training, I did four years and then set up a center um, in Christchurch, New Zealand, as a a way of further exploring the relationships between mind and body, uh, not so much tethered to the institutions that had structures that uh, govern what you could and couldn't do or what was valid and what was legitimate and all those pressures. So that's what I did for the next 24 years. And, and as a pragmatic thing, I, I restarted my immunology career because I never really wanted to leave medicine. That wasn't the point of the journey. It wasn't, I wasn't about to ship out. I was shipping stuff in, I suppose. Um, and uh, so I set up an immunology practice, private practice, um, and started to and, and, and commenced a psychotherapy practice and a center in which we trained psychotherapists. And the opportunity sat there with me. Here I was bringing together psychotherapy and internal medicine, immunological disorders, allergies of many kinds, other kinds of immune disorders, and started to see that uh, these people coming with their disturbed bodies also had disturbed stories. And uh, the question was, what am I going to do with that? Uh, it was exciting, it was disturbing, it was difficult because they get referred for physical disorders. They expect a, a kind of manner of a physician uh, or, a, or a, a given manner, a given way of acting, and what they get is that plus also questions about what happened around about the time they got ill or and so on. So my immunology practice and my story gathering became uh, my major focus. Were these the same were these the same sort of patients that were seeing you when you were a clinical immunologist? So these would be the same presentations but your your lens if you like was different. So people coming with the same ailments yes. but yet your approach was quite different when you integrated psychotherapy and Immunology. Absolutely. I, I think what I did exclude from 
practice for those patients that were going to need hospital care. So it became mainly generally the allergic disorders, uh, disorders that were thought by some to be allergic, and a whole lot of patients that got dumped into the allergic chain because people didn't know what to do with them. Um, so there were sort of standard allergic disorders, some in, inflammatory disorders, many patients with chronic urticaria or eczema or anaphylaxis or asthma, and many patients with um, symptoms that were undiagnosable by standard processes with physicians and GPs and many patients who had been seen by many other people before. So there was a sort of wide spectrum of looking at patients. I could look at them biomedically, which I did, and look at them from a story perspective, which I did. I, I regard those as two lenses on the whole, uh, on the whole of the person, rather than, and there may be other lenses, of course, but um, rather than a new lens that's different because I didn't didn't abandon appropriate and um, rigorous investigation from a biomedical lens perspective. Um, I've been always been very careful about that. That there are lots of good things about the standard way of looking, but there are there's a, a very narrow element to the standard way of looking as well. But before, so early on in your career, were you looking, you did just have one lens and you were looking at patients through a biomedical lens. You weren't so interested or alive to their story. I wasn't alive to the stories. Um, I, I've always been interested in persons and integration and what it all means, uh, what illness and health and so on mean. But I certainly didn't have any consciousness of these stories sitting around and about physical illness either before I went into psychiatry or after I came out of psychiatry. And that's an interesting point, but that's maybe not the is the case for another day. And so what's your connection with Cause Health? How was it you guys kind of bumped into each other? Yeah, we... we literally bumped into each other uh, well not literally but we bumped um, at the person-centered healthcare conferences where Rani Anjum and myself and others were presenting and um, I think I could see that um, the cause health perspectives arose out of a the same urges for a wider view and uh, for a multifactorial and multi-dimensional view of persons and the uniqueness of the individual, and they mm. were coming at it from a more theoretical perspective, not entirely, of course, but we had different languages, but um, basically they meant they were highly congruent. And you describe, or, or but you could tell us about some of the resources and training programs around whole person-centred care that you've developed. And so I'd like to know what you mean by whole person-centred care and if there, if there are any, I suppose, or perhaps contrast it with, you know, common notions of 
patient-centered care and person-centered care or holistic practice, they're, they're perhaps interchangeable, but maybe there's something you particularly want to say about the approach that you're using and, and training people up in? Hmm. Once I started to see people presenting not only with ascertainable physical illnesses, but with ascertainable stories, I started to see a, a subsection of these that were or seemed to be symbolic. That is, people presenting with conditions that matched uh, rather joltingly and startlingly in the form of illness. Uh, uh, the form of illness and the story seemed to match. Uh, if you look at people who've been sexually abused with um, uh, genital and oral syndromes, at the more severe, severe end, you look at people with facial rashes and um, keeping a brave face on their uh, husband's depression, or it just goes on and on. I, uh, and I don't want to um, press this, the issue of symbolic illness too far because it's not the only thing in all this. But the symbolic illnesses really exposed my dualism. Um, and what I mean by that is if someone presents with a physical condition and it matches perfectly their story, how on earth does that happen? You can't. Meaning doesn't get expressed in the body. Surely. Not to that extent, anyway. These were the questions. But it happened again and again, and I had, in the end, I had about um, 150 of these that were taxing my theoretical capacity. And, 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 and when I present these cases to medical people, they this can't happen, or, or it must be just coincidence, or, um, and so on. So underneath medical um, frameworks of thinking is a separateness between mind and body. Now, that's changing to some extent with the brain focus, uh, but uh, I won't get distracted into that. <laughs> and, it, of course, patients make sense of it immediately. They, oh, yeah, that sounds, that sounds like that could be right. Um, you know, so it, it's a medical way of thinking, this dualism that I, I got exposed or expo I got was exposed in me, I, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I started to think about how we think about people and persons and the compartmentalizations that we make. And eventually I decided and felt, and there were like, there's lots of literature, whether it's anthropological or philosophical or consciousness literature or all over the place. There are contributions to a rationality that has that says that actually people are not divided and that um, meaning and matter, uh, just like nature and nurture, are inextricably divided. And if you look at infants, for instance, um, they don't emerge with a body and then acquire a mind later. 
They're born and they're obviously subjective unities that certainly develop both physically and subjectively and mentally over time. And But that physical side and that mental side develops together. So it makes no sense to finally decide, oh, well, the body and its diseases are all separate from that, that subjective uh, element. Uh, in the end, it became not a question, well, we have to do this because it's symbolic disease. I think we have to do it because it's dumb not to. But it took me quite a while to work through and start to see that there's literature out there and there are ways of thinking out there that actually make it far more logical and sensible to consider the person as a whole. So um, if a person comes with a chronic disorder of any kind, um, I would always venture into the story side. Now, I would regard it as unethical for me not to um, uh, and, and stupid of me not to. Uh, because actually I might have more access to data and information that's relevant that could be helpful. That doesn't mean I I sideline physical and or make a binary between physical and the mental or the story and the physical diagnosis because I don't believe in such binaries. The problem arises as to how you do both those things when one is trained and disciplined to do the one thing, the physical side. Uh, I don't know whether I answered your question there, but uh, probably no. But it, it was it's it, no. It's taken us to a nice point, which I wanted to talk about, which was, I suppose, the apparent tension between and you. You I think you describe it nicely in the in the chapter, hearing stories and making diagnoses, and the idea about making diagnosis seems like it's a very biomedical pursuit, you know, labeling bits of people with a with a diagnostic construct, and as you said that this tension or or, or wonder if you could say something about whether there were, were any early tensions between really pursuing the understanding of someone's story but at the same time attending to their biological symptoms allergic symptoms skin complaints all that kind of stuff and how you do marry the two which appear to be from different paradigms yeah um I don't think they are different paradigms, actually. I think they're different ways of participating in the dualistic paradigm. <laughs> so um, doctors do this and psychotherapists do that. Doctors do the body, psychotherapists do mm. the mind. And um, when you think about that, that's carving the person into two. So I think there's the t the tension arises when doctors are asked to listen to stories, and when psychotherapists are asked to allow the body into the room. And uh, they're equal and opposite tensions, but they're the they're a manifestation of the same paradigm, which is that we can carve people up according to our disciplinary focus, and we will leave that aspect of them alone to someone else. Well, that is a systemic structural problem that we're faced with. I believe all doctors should be open to stories, and we can talk a little bit about the difficulty that that creates. Now, I've been through all the difficulties in the book, 
um, personally. So <laughs> um, from both sides, um, and I am very fortunate, I think, to have trained in both disciplines because I've been able to extract from them skills that either of those disciplines can't uh, enable. So I've had to face... I've had to face what it means for specialisations to actually participate in a whole person approach. And that's different for each discipline. So if you look at the tension that's involved in a doctor, the, the structural, the structuring of medical practice, the speed with which patients go through, uh, the focus on diagnostic labelling and sending them off for an evidence-based um, for evidence-based care. There's very little room in there for participating in the story, particularly amongst specialists, but not so much amongst GPs. But when you think of the time that GPs have got, there's very little room for different reasons. So. I can tell you a different story about the problem for every discipline that I've come across. With with psychotherapists who are much more open to the story aspect, it makes a lot of sense for them to see physical disease as participating with story. What they don't have is the legitimacy to even consider the body. Uh, you know, medicine has the body really sectored off. Um, and so they're afraid of the body. So what I did over the years was, uh, as my practice grew and I had a lot more patients than I could cope with, I sent patients out to good psychotherapists and found the patients didn't do so well. And the reason for that is that um, whenever the body came up, as it were, in the psychotherapy session, even though I had endorsed the body being there, they would say, oh, have you talked to the GP about that? Out, out you go with your body and stay here with <laughs> your mind. So I ended up supervising psychotherapists, eight, two groups of four psychotherapists for about 20 years, um, different people in the groups from time to time. But I found that if I held the body, held their confidence that they were actually not uh, trespassing in a way that was inappropriate, uh, we could do very good work with people. Um, so that it's not so much a problem of the individual therapist. I get to that in a moment. Uh, it's a problem of the systemic structuring away from whole persons in healthcare generally. And it's it's just hard, isn't it? I mean, it's much easier to either be all body and all you do is body, 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 or all mind and all you do is mind and mind. And it's, it's, it's simpler, isn't it? Life is much simpler. The minute you've got to begin to take a truly um, kind of rounded view of all those things, it, it becomes a lot a lot trickier and, and we talk about I suppose in back pain and muscular care this idea of a pendulum swinging either towards the biopsychosocial model and away from the biomedical model and people argue that the pendulum swung too far and we're all too biopsychosocial but even the idea that there is this one or the other um, and you're either a biomedical body-centered practitioner or a yeah. psychosocial brain mind-centered practitioner that that in itself is binary and not not really helpful. 
No, that's right. I mean, when you think about the way you've just described that, um, there is a kind of systemic um, clinical narcissism implied by that because um, it's simpler. Well, who's it simpler for? It's simpler for the doctor or the clinician. Is it simpler for the patient? Well, in some cases it might be. Um, but actually, if we think about chronic conditions, if the simplicity involved for the clinician means that something useful, helpful, uh, outside this perspective is not being engaged with, then actually, if I'm right, it's unethical. It might be simpler, but it's neglect. If you think of the, even if you think of it in terms of models, do I operate out of the biomedical model or the biopsychosocial model? Well, both of those are constructs. They're, they're ways of looking at a whole. And I mean, you're absolutely right to talk about them because I think that's what we're stuck with in the in the wider dimensions in which we work. The it's harder, but I, I think I, I did want to talk about why it's hard. Please, beyond those systemic things, and the first thing is that uh, which goes back to an earlier question about training. I used to do lots of hit-and-run workshops um, with clinicians. People would be very enthusiastic and interested, and and typically they would go back to their clinics on Monday, and by lunchtime, having had their eyes open to sort of story aspects, they would be potential burnout victims because they would see stories all over the place, and they didn't know what to do with them. And how how will I manage? And I've got 30 mm-hmm. patients today and I'm done, you know, by lunchtime. Um, uh, so um, I, I then decided we'd start a, a university training program for what we called it Mind Body Healthcare. And we, it was multidisciplinary and we, and we, I was involved in it for five or six years. And uh, or five or six um, two-year programs, um, and it took it took usually took about three or four or five months for most of the students to even start to realise how dualistic they were, um, or or how dualistic they were in practice in their offices. And it's one thing to realize that you're dualistic and discover that actually you don't have to be. It's another thing to know how to be in the clinic in a way that's not dualistic. So we we train people over for in a two-year. These were all clinicians, um, experienced clinicians, ranging from psychotherapists to uh, physicians to GPs to osteopaths to nurses and so on. And as I said before, every discipline has its own special way of uh, having the difficulty. 
Um, but often in the most often in the second year, people became much more confident. Now, what we what I discovered was firstly you had to have enough conceptual legitimization of wholeness that we actually shouldn't be treating people as carved up dualistic compartments, that we needed to actually understand that there was a solid way of looking at wholes and justifiably so. So that was the more philosophical side, the, the theoretical side. The second one was what did you what were the practical things to do in the clinic and uh, there are lots of skills simple skills that can be useful the most useful one being listening which um, and not listening for what you want to hear but listening for what's really there now I used to say that these two skills were it uh, theoretical training and skills training I don't think that now. I think that um, a lot of clinicians, there's a lot of wonderful people out in the healthcare disciplines, and but not all have the relational capacity to willingly listen to patient stories, and uh, many many clinicians don't like emotion. They they, they want facts. They they don't want a painful story to move into the space between them and the patient. And so a relational capacity and empathic capacity has to be uh, both valued and, and developed. Mm. But uh, there's more than that. Um, I think there's a certain type of intelligence needed, and that is how does the ordinary person hold two lenses, a biomedical lens, let's say these are the lenses that you should hold, um, biomedical lens and the story lens? How do you hold them together in the same time space? Do you do the biomedical first and the story later? Uh, which submerges the other? Do they need to be submerged? And I, I think... I think you do need some sort of capacity to hold different lenses in focus or able to leave one focus and go to the other focus, a bit like a camera. You know, you look at the foreground, you look at the middle ground, you look at the distance. And which one do you want or which one do you think is most appropriate for this, for this photograph that you're taking? And it's a bit like that. Um, but that's quite unusual for people to, or it's an unusual thing in medicine and healthcare. But there's still more than that. Um, so we've sort of we've got theory, we've got sort of practical skills, we've got relational capacity, we've got an ability to be a perspectival, that is not kind of stuck in one perspective, able to do the telephoto and do the macro photo if you like um, as a metaphor the the fifth thing is imagination because actually we know as clinicians what it is to be imaginative you and your training my, my training as a physician 
we've got a set number of kind of perspectives and we can start to imagine which one might be uh, the best perspective, the perspective that I'm triggered into knowing that this is the right thing. It becomes an intuition. When it comes to stories, I find fact-oriented clinicians really struggle. Someone says, oh, I got um, my hives. Oh, yeah, it was when I got them every weekend when my husband went away duck shooting. This is one that I remember. And she was left at home with the two small infants. I'd get hives too if I were her, but um, now if you were a GP listening to that, you might say, oh, you were stressed. Ah, okay. And, um, well, look, let's talk about antihistamines and whatever else you need for your control of your urticaria. But an imaginative clinician might say, ooh, that must be really hard. I wonder what it was, what's it like for you to for your husband to go off. Now, every woman in that particular circumstance would feel something slightly different. And if you've got a good imagination, you don't guess what that difference is. You you imagine that there'll be something pe peculiar in that old-fashioned sense of peculiar that is highly unique and specific and idiosyncratic for that person. So you ask them, you have the imagination to say, oh, I, I can imagine for myself what that would be like. I wonder what it would be like for you. That's empathy in another form. But this lack of imagination is not so much a lack in clinicians, but a lack of practicing that kind of imaginative exercise, which is not about being slick and clever uh, beforehand. It's a about having the imaginative space to actually allow what really is to come into that space. Um, I'm writing a paper on that at the moment, and I, I, I think this is why this is so difficult, um, because we have to allow all those levels to operate. Now, some clinicians take to it like ducks to water because they are whole holistic and not holistic they see themselves as holes and they see others as holes they take to it because they are not bound up by old theory lots of clinicians are not very theoretical some are naturally relational i've had some wonderful people come through our training program what most clinicians lack is the legitimacy of doing it. That is, they go to work and their colleagues say, what are you doing? And they tell them these stories and, oh, oh, oh. Um, oh the medical council lurks over their shoulders, you know. I, there's a kind of cultural pressure to behave in the same old way. The, the imagination point, and I thought it was fascinating and... and but I just, I know you're writing a paper on it, so I'm not going <laughs> to, you don't need to rewrite your paper. But when you say you know, about having an imagination, to me that suggests that you're almost front-loading, you're imagining what this person might be feeling. But isn't it the case that you have no idea what that person's feeling? And that's really what's driving that, that question saying, 
I can imagine what it's like for me, but I, I really have no idea what it's like for you and provide an opening for them to, to tell you. So, so you don't assume that you have any sense really of what's going on. Yeah. Um, it's creating an imaginative space more than it is loading up the space with givens. Okay. Uh, I mean, it is a given that if you're left for a weekend by a partner with small children, <laughs> I mean, there are some things that are given. <laughs> um, but but on the other hand, you're absolutely right. It might be that you can't stand them and you're glad to see them go, <laughs> but you haven't owned up to that yet. And that might be the, the information that enters that space in which you imagine together. Imagination isn't making up stuff so much as the capacity to make room mm. creatively. Or to be open for a range of possibilities. Yes, but... To have a range of possibilities, you actually have to imagine that they are possible. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm and using the word imagination. I'm confusing the picture a wee bit, but that does need unpacking further. I also wanted to ask about, and you know, just when you were, I suppose, role-playing for yourself or with me, which was really powerful and, and really conveyed just those simple phrases about exploring, you know, you know, I can imagine what it's like for me, but, but what must have been like for you. But then you suggested that the traditional clinicians or GPs may not feel that that was a legitimate way to practice medicine and that, that there, obviously there's some fears around, you know, regulation or whatever it might be. But I can't imagine that you're just being sincerely interested in someone's story uh, yeah, I'm trying to imagine what clinician would find that that wouldn't be a a wonderful way of attending to the patient's concerns. There, there are two things here, or at least two. One is the question of legitimacy. At the moment, I'm mentoring a group of medical students who've sought me out to, all of them are, uh, they're not graduated yet, and they range from second year through to sixth year uh, in their in their stage of training. And all of them in, have come into medicine because they've had an urge to, I don't know, be a healing presence to help to, uh, quite idealistic in a way, and, and half of them would be people who've trained in other things like journalism, um, one's an artist. Um, uh, so they've come with life experience and they've come with a kind of, probably the, a similar kind of intensity of idealism that um, I went into medicine with. And I, I've noticed that um, some of them, and most of them actually, once they've given permission to talk about a patient with a physical condition, which they come with, or they don't come with, but they bring stories of, and once they start and they say, well, the patient just dropped this into the consultation, and what do we make of it? And I say, well, let's imagine what that might mean, that simple statement. It happened uh, when I came back from overseas. What could you imagine that might mean? 
you know, the, the person, who the patient is 25 and they've gone back to their city of origin and what could it mean? And, of course, they have no problem trying to imagine from their own perspective. But the first thing is they don't know whether they're allowed to imagine, even do that because they're being trained. Uh, to be very careful on the biomedical side. So a lot of it is about me giving permission. And what happens when you're as old as I am and been through 30 or 40 years of this, and, and what happens to your career and what happens to uh, uh, the approval of your colleagues and and do you get complaints and, uh, and uh, so on and so there are these huge pressures around, which some of which are imaginary, of course. Um, <laughs> but the second thing is that, which is much, not more important, but very important, is that what is the nature of healing? Do you come into medicine to be a, a, a biotechnician, or do you come in, or healthcare generally, or do you come in to be a healer of some sort? And one of the things I've realized in my work, as you, as you can see, some of it is based, focused on meaning and stories. But a lot of the power comes, uh, I use the word power cautiously but advisedly, a lot of the power for healing comes in the quality of the relationship. It's not entirely confined to that. But you can have a non-dualistic view of things, but be a hopeless clinician because you're all in your head and you're not able to enact a person-to-person -person relational posture with the patient or the client. So it's interesting. We had, I supervised in in conjoint with others. A, a, a mature student doing um, uh, who looked at our whole person treatment approach, and all, all of the clinicians she consulted talked about accessing it through the story and the meaning of what was happening to the person. The patients didn't talk about that at all. They talked about what they experienced when they went to a clinician who, A, made connections, but who cared and, and were, were genuinely interested in the whole of them. So I don't think whole person-centered care is about a reduction to meaning or a reduction to story or a reduction to relationship or a reduction to a new, better theory or a reduction to anything. It's about persons being with persons intelligently, and that requires a lot of things, including uh, all the best elements of biomedicine or the biopsychosocial approach or whatever approach um, seems to be helpful. Um, so healing, I think, is a word that we don't use in healthcare. Oh, healers mm. must be shamans or witch doctors. Or, um, but actually, 
And I'll go even further. The other word that's not used in, in healthcare, that dangerous word of love. And, you know, these patients, when treated as wholes, they, if you put it really simply, they feel loved. And when you think of people's stories, our stories are full of, of love and hate and resentment and fear and guilt and joy and disappointment and frustration. And that's what stories are made of. They're made of relationship and uh, the connection between relationship and stories with the body is so natural and to me now that I just instinctively assume it, um, but it's not true for a lot of clinicians. It, uh, it's a, a crab-like process of realizing how much we've been immersed in a, a in a paradigm paradigmatic structure which is basically physicalist and materialist. And you mentioned before about the people that bid on the course on the weekend and then on the Monday they were candidates for burnout. When you describe stories in that way where there are just these, there's this richness and these emotions which are part of the story and will be experienced potential on, on both sides, if you like, of the relationship, how, how is it that you're not experiencing burnout as we go through this, this podcast? So how, is, how, how is a clinician, people talk about empathy fatigue and things like that, but how do you, how does a working clinician manage manage this burden if you like of people's big heavy stories and whilst you know sincerely wanting to apprehend those and understand them and be part of the healing at the same time it doesn't kind of yeah. bring you down or become too of a heavy load yeah i think uh, wow there's so many things i could say to that but the first thing i want to say is that in the modern age, we are kind of trained to think that more and more is better. And what I notice in when I'm role playing or not role play, uh, watching role plays, particularly with clinicians experienced or or non-experienced, um, is that a patient may say something and the clinician doesn't seem to hear it because they're anxious to get on to the next bit as well. So if in medicine, you're trained to actually ask a set of complete questions. That's as a student. And it's easy to adopt that approach to stories. If we go back to the, the woman with the duck shooting, not duck shooting, hunting or shooting husband, it might be enough to say, um, oh, that must be really hard for you. I wonder what the main feeling is for you. And uh, your GP say, I think that might be connected with your hives. How about you go away and have a think about that? And we'll see you next week and see how you're doing. Or in two weeks' time, we'll give you some medication. And let's see where you've got to with that. 
Now, 50% of patients will go home and say, you're the, you're the cause of my uh, urticaria. <laughs> it's about time we sorted this out. <laughs> and when she comes back and her urticaria is gone. That's not hard to do. <laughs> but we tend to, the more obsessional amongst us tend to think, okay, I've opened up the story. Now I need to somehow be, I need to be the psychotherapist, or I need to fix this, I need to sort out this. No, I don't think that's true. So a lot of the work is about me just making connections. I would say to people, oh, you know, um, when they come into a clinic, you know, I don't think we have a body there and a mind there. I think they're like this, always together. And I, I'd like to you to think a little bit about the injury you had, but also about what you, what, what the main things that stress you are. And maybe we next time we could talk about that because both things operate together. You might know that because it's come up in the conversation. You don't have to actually load, front load that initial session with that. Or you might say, and then they come back and they say, oh, I've been thinking about that, I wonder. And it, you say something again simple and they say, oh, whatever. And I, I think that idea that we must be the complete package rather than, say, some sort of midwife or sometimes an obstetrician. But I think the other thing is that we are in the world we're in. So we can't stand there like the boy with his finger in the dike, thinking you can hold and it back. Um, we do live in it, and so there's a certain amount of triage goes on. If there's a simple treatment, I might take that very simple approach and just raise the question. If it's someone with a chronic disorder that's been around the traps for years, I might say, well, you've had a respiratory physician, you're a rheumatologist, you've had a cardiologist, you've had a neurologist looking at you. I'm not going to repeat all that today. Um, I'm a whole person-oriented clinician, and I'd see that no one's looked at other factors, and I'm going to hold them together, but um, there are things that I want to know today, that, and I might do a, a much more sort of story-oriented session, and I mightn't even complete it in the first session, and if I were a GP, I would do it in bits, so every clinician's going to do it quite differently. But in the end, you've got to also be healthy yourself and look after yourself. And uh, so I've always had supervision with various people, or peer supervision mainly in latter years, but uh, always sort of talking with colleagues who are like-minded and, and specifically about patients and uh, that I'm seeing um, or dilemmas that arise. So uh, supervision is not a big tradition in medicine or healthcare either. And I don't mean supervision in the top down. Well, there is a bit of that as well. But I mean supervision in the accountability sense and uh, how to remain scrupulous and fastidious in your work.
I'm conscious of the time and um, you've been very generous with your time. I wanted to know, or, or just to give you the opportunity to kind of convey any messages or take home messages or things that you really want the chapter to, to kind of push through. I'm about, at the end of this month, I finally retire from clinical practice. And we've probably trained um, 70 or 80 clinicians formally uh, in this country, and they've all gone off and done whole person work in their own way. I'm conscious that virtually no one has done what I've done, which is to train in both psychotherapy and in medicine. And I don't think that's necessary. I think it's been necessary, or certainly necessary for me, uh, for whatever reasons that were necessary. But um, And it's been tremendously helpful in my conceptual development um, and in the more sort of writing era. Area, but I, I think the big, big challenges uh, whether the modern shift towards ecology of persons and ecologies of society and ecology of the whole globe really is going to uh, create some sort of movement or some shifting of this inertia which leads us charging down an increasingly expensive technological approach to living and life and wellness and health and illness. And uh, I, I, think, I think what I've done is shown in a smallish way what it can be to enact a whole person-centered healthcare. But it needs far more resources and far more people and a consortium, transnational, trans international and transnational consortiums of people who are intent on publicizing the need for change and 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 of course enacting it in some way. But because holes are holes and holes are rich complexities, it's difficult to get movements that can hold it not only theoretically but also clinically in a way that is practically or, or generalizable. Generalizable, I think, is the word. So one of the reasons I, I, I was attracted to Cause Health was it was a it is a, or has been a, a, a group of quite diverse people glued together by concepts and theory or theoretical structure mm. and the obvious nature of what is needed. And, and, and not being, and I, I, I would like to see Cause Health be even more, no, 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 I, the, the, I think Rani and colleagues are adventurous uh, for sure. Uh, I, I think, well, I hope that somehow it'll generalise beyond the pond that I've been operating in. And um, and if I can do anything to assist that, I'd be, I'd be glad. But uh, I, I think 
I think it's going to be very hard to change things given the climate emergency and the belief systems around that technologies are the answer to this. And I think this is medicine's analogy to the wider issue of um, human enterprise and the climate emergency, which is how 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 should we be living and how should we be living in relationship and what does healing uh, mean in both medicine and in society and in the planet and so finish on a cheery note then <laughs> yeah I, look i'm sorry it isn't um uh, these are hard questions i said when i spoke to Rafe and Kai, one of the things they both said is how long it takes for them to, to spend, you know, how much time they, they spend with patients, you know, hour, 90 minutes, to really get that story. And you, you just mentioned the, I suppose, the impracticalities of the whole person approach, that it is just one, I suppose, bare truth of it. It just takes time to, to try and get that understanding and time isn't something that modern medicine seems to have. Yeah, I, I do want to push back a little bit on that, Oliver. Um, I, I too, I'm in the same stable as them. But I do think there's an enormous amount of good that can be done by nurses and physios and doctors just by having a relational view of what they do and having a non-dual approach. Basically, we're training the whole population into dualism and to non-relational practice. And uh, I, I think, sure, uh, Kaya and Raf and myself sit at the more concentrated and intensive end of the spectrum. We're always going to need that for patients. And we're proving it's possible but I think if, if we end up proving that it's only possible in a few and that there isn't usefulness in the simple uh, manifestations of this approach, then I think we're doing harm to the movement. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I have learned. Uh, I think there are people who can contribute hugely from a whole-person perspective without... Uh, huge or even big disruption of their practices. Brian, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for doing this. I, I think it's a, a wonderful thing. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources, and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.